What's happening, Hardscapers? This is episode 246 of the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And on today's episode, we have a returning guest, Weston Zimmerman. You may know him from Synced Up. He is the founder and CEO or co-founder and CEO of Synced Up. He's also the host of the Cost of Doing Business podcast. And this is a podcast that we did at uh, Landscape Ontario or after the conference there. And it was a great conversation that me and Weston have been wanting to have for a while now, ever since uh, we had Jim Houston as a guest on the show back almost a year ago now talking about uh, price overhead recovery systems, uh, pricing systems, and how me and Jim Houston agree on the Moors uh, not being not using Moors or multiple overhead recovery systems as a way to recover your overhead. Uh, always something that we're gonna disagree with, though. There's some things that me and Jim will disagree on. There's also some things that I'm sure me and Weston would disagree on when it comes to overhead recovery systems. And we uh, ultimately just open up the conversation about this and then get into a a lot of things that we just tend to uh, ultimately agree on at the end of it. And if you are just getting into talking about pricing, uh, I've got lots of different opinions when it comes to these different overhead recovery systems. So feel free to shoot me a message whenever you want if you have any questions about any of this. But this podcast in and of itself, I think, is a perfect medium to have these conversations and to present these different differing opinions to you, the listener, for you to make up your own mind or to dig a little bit deeper to figure out how you want to run your own business. And uh, that's that's the purpose of this podcast. And especially moving forward with this podcast, I want to have more and more conversations like this. And I thank Weston for being able to sit down with me, making the time and to be able to have this conversation. So uh, we want to say thank our sponsor first, Cycle CPA, for looking for bookkeeping, accounting, CFO services. Reach out to Cycle CPA at CycleCPA.com. Let them know how to Hardscape sent you for money off their services there. And without further ado, let's get into today's conversation with Weston Zimmerman. Today we're joined by Weston Zimmerman. This is interesting, Weston. This is, <laughs> I'm going to have to get used to this. We don't do video uh, on the How to Hardscape podcast, so this is really great to see. I see my face in this one. This is awesome. Weston Zimmerman, uh, co-founder and CEO of Synced Up, a project management software system. Weston, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, hey, thanks for doing this. I uh, I was looking forward to this. You know, Stephanie was helping us line this up, and we're up here at the Landscape Ontario show, and we're literally here recording this in the lobby of the hotel, so yeah, make it happen I, where you're at. It's great that you make the trip up to uh, Ontario here. This is your second time at yeah. Congress? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, just to see your face and seeing you at all these different industry events and how uh, much Synced Up has helped this industry, and you yourself is kind of that, that push towards uh, helping these contractors I've always kind of had that connection with you that I, I really appreciate what you do for the industry. I just want to get that out of the way very first thing uh, with that. But that being said, Weston, putting you at the hot seat right away, <laughs> what's one thing that our audience or the landscape industry, people that even know you may not know about you? What's something that you can give us um, that's uh, interesting about you? Well, there, there's definitely people that know this, but maybe at large not. Um, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in the Appalachian Mountains in a conservative horse and buggy Mennonite community. 
So I grew up with zero technology. Wow. Um, and we had electricity, but no tech of any sort, not even cameras or anything. Yeah. And uh, my first two years of working at Tusky Landscaping, I had no driver's license because of that, and I biked to work. Wow. 12 miles one way. No way. Yep. And so, yeah, that was, that was how I grew up. You know, tech wasn't really a part of my life until my mid to later teens really wow yeah that's incredible so. <laughs> i didn't know that about you that's great how's that is that does that work for the answer that, that works awesome man so where where does technology start to come into your life well what's the catalyst for that well that's a good question um so basically my dad had a electrical contractor business contracting business that w then started doing fiber optic in the 90s okay when the the fiber optic internet boom kind of was kind of happening which then led into technical like phone systems security systems cameras so even though we were in this horse and buggy mennonite community yeah. at, at his work at his business they were installing technology yeah so we lived without it at home okay but we, he installed it as a for a living so i was around tech in that regard right um, and then what happened is when I started working for Tyson Landscaping, um, well, I was, and I sort of, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I, I don't, I left that community where I grew up at. Okay. And so, and at that point I started actually using technology, uh, you know, got the standard, you know, cell phone cameras, all that kind of thing. And when I was working at Tyson Landscaping, um, we were trying to get off a of pen and paper. We're using, and we, we, you know, I researched and bought products and set them up inside uh, inside of Tesla Landscaping. I, that was kind of a project I let out. Um, I kind of wanted to do things. I wanted to have responsibility or I wanted to do things. And that was something like, yeah, you know, knock yourself out, you know. So I kind of got, I kind of got sucked in or pulled into what tech can do in the real world through that exercise. Got first. it, yeah. got it. So quite a 180 to today yeah. having a software <laughs> and all of this technology around us. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite the journey. That's awesome. Wow, uh, yeah. And then, so then you start working for Tussie and um, what's that journey like towards, fill us in from the, the start of working for Tussie to starting Synced Up. Yeah, so I started working for Tussie when I was 16. Um, I Before that, what got me into Tussie, before that, I had been working for my uncle at his cabinet shop and uh, building kitchens. Oh, yeah. And cabinetry. And um, I enjoyed the craftsmanship of that, but I, I, I didn't like being inside. And I hated the finishing room, like the painting and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I ran into Matt, uh, which is one of the owners of Tussie Landscaping, right. Steve and Matt are brothers. Um, and I was like, huh, I could see myself doing that. Cause I grew up on a, like where we, where I grew up, it was like a 15 acre property. So I was the one that would just stripe that lawn and mulch all the, mulch all the flower beds and plant all the trees. I did, I loved doing that. So I was like, I could see myself doing that. And, uh, I called Matt out of the blue one day and asked him if he, if I, if we're herring and he's like, well, how would you get here? Cause he knew I didn't have a license. He's <laughs> like, I'll bike, you know, no problem. 12 miles. No, that's a big, you know, big deal. And yeah. so, um, I started working for Tussie. And that would have been in 2007. And I then, it was probably 2012 to 13 to 14 when I was in doing what I was telling you earlier about trying to get Tessie off of paper. Like I was the first one to right. do like service call, like, cert, like manage service calls and stuff on water features and stuff at Tessie. And so everything at that time was totally on paper. Yeah. So it was, it was just all the reasons that that doesn't work was, 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 was what the life we were living. 
And so I started researching other products, got and started using some products that we really liked. But the challenge was is if they were really good in the front field with scheduling and client communications, they had no financials. Or if mm -hmm. they had financials, they were tougher on the front field side of things. And so um, to fast forward a lot of details very quickly, um, I can, in, that, in that process where we use this product, then that product, then this product, plus spreadsheets, plus QuickBooks, plus, you know, in, in, in this maze of products to try to fill, to kind of get a, a whole suite around our project life cycle. Right. Um, I came home from work. Well, my dad sold that business. Okay. And he went to go work for the business that bought him out. And that business had a software development division, which had never, I had never been exposed to anything like that ever in my life. But my dad was working with them and actually got assigned as a project manager to one of these software projects that that company was doing. Yeah. And I remember coming home from work one day in the middle of Cassie using a whole bunch of products at once simultaneously. Mm -hmm and watching him, he was working on his laptop on the back patio, and, uh, and I was asking him, like, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just testing a software project. And I was like, so you mean you, you can just dream up or like imagine or design how it should work and build it? You know, it was like this light bulb went off in my head. And from then on, I was kind of on a mission of like, okay, screw all this other stuff on the market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's build our own, which in hindsight, was a really naive, uh, <laughs> really naive thing. But you know, if you would have known what all the things you didn't know, how many times would we start yeah. doing what we set out to do? You know, so it's not like I have any regrets. But I will say, I today I sit here and think it's a miracle that we're here. And, uh, <laughs> so that's 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 how we went from starting at Tusk Landscaping to starting and building Synced Up. So having. Having started Synced Up into where you are now, what is a misconception of the software world coming from the landscape side of things that you had going into starting a software company that you're like, man, I can't believe I thought that back then? That's a good question. Um, you mean a misconception I would have had? Misconception of the software world or just uh, building a software, what that would have looked like. Um, yeah, I think I have one. Yeah. Okay. so. In the beginning, even when we were started developing Synced Up, um, it was like, it felt cool. The more custom we made it, you know, the more like, oh, all this conditional logic and all this stuff, yeah. the more, the, like, it, it felt like it was cool and be so automated and so powerful. Where actually, like the more complicated we made it, like the better, right? Mm -hmm. Where actually today, I'm, like, I'm a complete 180. It's like the simpler you make it, the right. better. And so every time you, insert another layer of complexity or another another angle of automation or whatever you you insert another layer of complexity mm -hmm. and while it may do one thing really really well what what you what i learned was like wow like people didn't even use it in the way i intended them to use it they used it this way which i would have never anticipated which by the way isn't going to work so how to how to architect yeah. a software project that is actually fluid can actually be adopted, like can actually be used and adopted, mm -hmm. and is and is flexible, but you can't break it be because of unexpected user behavior. Yep, is uh, it's a it's a real art. It's it's every bit as complex. Or, or imagine the architect of designing this this hotel building we're sitting in. You know, it's there's a lot that goes into it, and there's a lot of like just common 
well, yeah, bathrooms always have to be this certain size, or right. you know, the entryway and the it has to be always this certain width or whatever. Like, there's a lot of those things that get figured out for many, many, many years of doing it. Right. And software is really no different. You're architecting a system, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, the, the misconception was the more against the grain we are, the cooler we are, or the more amazing we are, is totally not doesn't serve you right doesn't serve you all right. it does is make your life miserable in the long run got it got it okay so i want to revisit that because yeah. i've got so many questions for you man <laughs> like we, we could go on for many many hours here. yeah but let, let's get into budgeting and the reason why actually we wanted to have this discussion because uh, uh earlier this year i had a guest on the how to hardscape podcast jim houston who uh, talked about uh, multiple overhead recovery system and his uh, viewpoints on it and what he would do differently if he was budgeting and trying to recover his overhead. And I tend to agree with a lot of what he said. Some things that he says uh, I, I think are maybe outdated ways of doing multiple overhead recovery system. Maybe it's been developed. Uh, but I, I want to know your thoughts because I know that you have your own thoughts on budgeting mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. recovering that overhead. So. I'm just gonna give this to you and let you kind of start the conversation. What What are your thoughts on uh, the correct way? I'll set yeah. you up for a spike yeah. on that. Yeah. The <laughs> correct way to recover your overhead, or what does that look like uh, for a business, a landscape well, business? Well, I mean, this sounds a little cliche, but the correct way is whatever way you can use and use consistently. And so to that point, um, every, like I said, told you off the podcast, every system, Budgeting is pure math, mm. and in, in math there's variables, there's inputs and there's outputs, right? And any system, you can put dirty inputs, like pollute the math by putting bad inputs or, or abusing the math, abusing yeah. the system. So any system you can break. Mm -hmm. And so to Jim Houston's point, I remember, I haven't listened to it, whenever it came out is yeah. when I listened to it, so that was a couple months ago. But um, he, what he was really railing on was the arbitrary 10% or 20% overhead recovery uh, on materials. Like where'd that number come from? It just pulled it out of thin air. Yeah. And um, I'll get into that later. But like the point is, is you can abuse any system. Yes. Uh, and you can, you can, uh, so it comes down to understanding and grasping the system that you are using to the degree that you are aware of the ways to abuse it or, or make it tell you something that's not true mm -hmm. and avoid them. You're right. And so if you do that, then I don't really care what system or what method you use. Right. It's more of, because it's like no system is infallible. Right. They're, they're all equally, they all have pros. Like it's like, I've said this to earlier on, on some of our product meetings internally, all you're doing is moving the complexity. Yes. So, okay, so fine, let's not do overhead recovery on materials then, fine. Well, what he was proposing as the solution is like, all you did is move the complexity over there. Yeah. You know, and okay. so, Yes, you solved it. You couldn't break it over here, but now you can break it over here. Right. You know, and so those are those are some of my thoughts overall on how budgeting should work and what's the best system. So I, don't mind me. I'm going to take notes just because I forget questions yeah, that I have in yeah. mind to revisit here. But one of the things that I do agree with them on uh, is that labor. We're we're in a service industry. We're selling labor, and labor has a schedule, amount of hours, whereas that that's where I agree with like a labor rate recovering overhead through your labor rate based on your schedule yeah. works really well. Yes. Whereas multiple overhead recovery system has you recover it through materials and materials can be very different yep. 
It's very difficult to yep. budget materials unless you're a well-oiled machine and you're doing the same design build project from project Consistent. to project, right? Um, that's where I have a problem with multiple overhead yeah. recovery system. I'd love to know like your thoughts on yep. that. So I'm not married to Moore's in any way. Right, and, right. And so I actually agree very much with Jim Houston's like reasoning behind why you should do it on labor. Is because labor represents a finite span of time. Yes. And so uh, there's two thoughts I have on this. Labor is very effective thing to anchor your overhead recovery to because you have a finite span of time, like a year, mm -hmm. to recover that year's worth of overhead. Right. And you want to recover that in a year, not 11 months, not 12, not 13 months. Mm -hmm. You know, recover it in a year. Yes. I mean, if you do it in 11 months, great, you know. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like um, and so to that point, labor represents a span of time. Like if you have 8,000 man hours in your budget, mm -hmm. well, that means four guys times 2,000 hours. You know, there's your, it represents a span of time. Mm -hmm. Materials has no anchor in any, in any way to that. Right. Right. So right. I actually agree with that line of thinking. The other thing I would say is you should anchor your overhead recovery to whichever is your most consistent expense. Yeah. Most times that's labor, but not always. True. You know, some people have like, kind of a, 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 you know, use a lot of subs or maybe, you know, who knows, insert the variable. Like, yep. but like in, in it, I actually do t tend to prefer recovering most, if not all of my overhead on labor. That's mm -hmm. my default go-to. Yep. Unless your business model, it has a, a logical case for doing something other than that. Right. Like I'm not a fan of like what I know, what I know a lot of people do in more is like 10% of materials, 10% on subs, 10% on equipment and the rest on labor. Mm. I'm not a fan of that really because the way I kind of view equipment, it is an overhead expense. Yes, I do too. And so you're recovering overhead on top of overhead. Yeah. It's kind of weird, you know? Um, subs, I don't like unless subs, again, trumps labor in terms of it's your most consistent expense. So if your business yeah. model is all subs, well then yes. I was actually was, had that conversation today with somebody that just signed up with Sync Up that they're a total sub model. And mm. so it doesn't work to recover his overhead on labor out on man hours. Yes. So yes, okay. So to 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 kind of practice what I preach here, yeah. My preferences are X, Y, Z. You know, recovering it on labor, eh, not so much on anything else. Definitely not on equipment. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, what's your business model? Let's anchor your overhead recovery to the most consistent expense you have because we don't want to anchor it to the thing that can swing. Like materials can yes. swing. Because if you anchor it to the thing that can swing, like maybe one year you do $200,000 worth of materials and next it's double. Yep. But you but the same, it was the same span of time, a yep. year. Well then, on most likely, on the year you did $200,000 worth of materials, you didn't recover enough of overhead. Mm -hmm. On the year you did four hundred. You, you recovered too much or priced yourself higher than you would have needed to and could have potentially lost work. Right. So it all comes to me in my way of processing, it all comes back to anchoring it to the most consistent expense because mm -hmm. that makes sure that your overhead recovery is as predictable as possible and lets you assign the rest of it to whatever value you're producing. Like, yeah. You know, it's not like it's priced too high or too low because of overhead recovery. Yeah, as soon as you like start to peel back the onion, it's amazingly like, how much we really do agree on when it comes to this. Uh, we've talked about a lot of this off the air as well, like things like equipment. I also yeah. tie my equipment to overhead. Yeah. I'd love to know your thoughts on why you see that as well. Yeah, well, okay, so a couple practical reasons. Again, the way you, re the way you view equipment expenses, there are pros and cons to every method. And, yep. and, and, you, I hear people like preach that the one is better than the other. It's like, fine, but it's not. And, and it, it, you know, it, because you could be screwing it up 
If so then what can happen is someone that doesn't understand the, 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 the dynamics of the numbers or the, how the numbers are working yes. can come into that method and not be aware of the ways to mess it up right. and, and it actually not serve them. It actually, it actually screws them up, like the yeah. financials. So uh, there's kind of two, the two common ones are treat my equipment as any other expense and bill for it by the hour, by the day yeah. uh, when I'm bidding a job. The other one is just treat it as an overhead expense, yep. and it gets baked into my overhead recovery, which mm -hmm. is what we just start, what we just did talk about yes. the overhead recovery. So um, there is a case to be made for both. So on one hand, the con of putting your equipment in the overhead recovery is yes, it will jack your, if assuming you're recovering your overhead on labor, it will jack your labor rates up. Yes, and in a business where you're doing both reoccurring maintenance and install. And what can happen is your mowing price goes up because of all that overhead in equipment that you have. And so the solution could be, well, then maybe you should build two budgets, one for maintenance and one for, right. one for install. Yeah. So, so those are ways where some, th th that's the most common reason people don't want to put equipment in overheads because it jacks their other services yes. up unless they do multiple budgets. Right. Um, and it also does the thing of like, what if I sell a job to Mrs. Jones that pretty much doesn't need any equipment? Mm versus one that's really equipment heavy. I want the cost to be weighted. Yep. It, like if I don't use equipment, it doesn't. It brings my price down. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I use the equipment a lot, it brings my price up, which is cool. As long as, this is the cons of this method, as long as you don't tweak the numbers in your estimate because equipment is a significant portion of the price of a job. And what I have seen many times is salespeople be like, Man, I really want this job, man. Yeah, it won't take five days with that skill. Let's just take three. Yeah, just take three. So they, they tweak it. And it has a significant impact. Yes. But then it takes five anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. And or or this other thing that I've seen is like where a contractor is like, why well, I didn't put the equipment in the bid, so I'm not gonna bring it. Meanwhile, it's taken me longer to do the job. Mm -hmm. And now I wish I'd have had the equipment in the bid, but I'm not gonna bring it because I didn't have it in the bid. Yeah. Now it's taking me longer to do the job. And so, but I'm not going to bring it because I don't want to add that cost. Right. Well, you're, you're, you're losing opportunity cost by the fact that it's taking you longer to do the job. Mm -hmm. You'd almost be better off just bringing the equipment and just doing it. So right. you have that other billable day to go put to another billable job. Mm -hmm. even, though, even if you didn't have the equipment in your bid originally. Right. So that's kind of the billing by the hour, by the day, billing by the unit for equipment is effective as long as you're not susceptible and, and to tweaking the numbers and, and, uh, and that you that you are factoring in depreciation into that hourly rate because that's a big that's a big chunk of it right um, it's not just fuel and repair and maintenance and operator you got depreciation it's a significant chunk of right. that of that rate so on the recovering equipment and overhead i like it because it's simple you you almost can't screw it up meaning if it's baked into your overhead However you're bidding the job, it's going to be there. And then you kind of have the mental freedom or license to, if I need the equipment, I can use it because I'm, you know, it's baked in. Like I'm, you know, but then the caveat that people often don't like is whether I'm planting a flower with a shovel or I'm digging a ditch with an $80,000 machine, the labor rate's the same. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. So that's what people often don't like about that method. Yep. But my argument against that is that equipment is costing you money whether you're planting a flower with a shovel or whether you're actually digging. If that equipment's sitting back in the parking lot, you're still have to pay, the payment's gonna be, you're still gonna have to pay for it. Yep. And it's still depreciating. Yep. You have to recover it. It doesn't matter what you're actually doing in that man hour. Mm -hmm. So my argument is like, just bake it in, recover it, 
use it when you need it. Leverage the equipment to its fullest. Don't get hung up over like, well, I didn't have it in the bid, so I can't use it. And, and you actually will generate the funds needed to pay for that, depreciate all the expenses yes. you have related to that equipment yeah. throughout the year. And it's simple. You don't have to think about it. You don't have the temptation of like, ah, it's not going to take five days, it's going to take three. Yep. You know, it's, it's just like bake it in. It's, it's not even on the thing. It's, it's just less moving parts, less ways to mess it up, in my opinion. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I also don't like the extra step of when you're quoting a project, having to figure out, okay, what equipment am I going to bring this project? Yeah. As opposed to just having it in your overhead. Uh, I also talk to people about creating either a cash flow budget or a comprehensive budget. The cash flow budget being more so, okay, I want to pay for my equipment. I want the financing to be paid for, whether well, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, using yeah. that equipment yep. or not. Whereas a comprehensive budget is more so, okay, I'm not gonna be using this piece of equipment five days of the week. I'm gonna be using it two days of the week, but I'm gonna be able to use it for more years because of that. So I'm able to spread that out. So I'm not gonna capture my financing monthly, yep. but I'm gonna have that equipment for a longer period of time and my, my payment spread out over that period of yeah, time. Yeah, so in theory- or my overhead recovery is spread out over that period of time. Yes, so if I'm understanding you right, let's imagine you have a $100,000 piece of equipment that you're gonna pay off in three years. Yep. So that payment is 100,000 divided by three years, 36 payments, yep. so it's significant. Yep. But if you depreciate that equipment out over 10 years because yes. you're planning on keeping it for 10, yep. what's gonna happen is you're not recovering the full amount of that payment in a, in a year, which means your, your, your cash flow is your, actually less. And profit yes. will be less. Your profit, your profit will be impacted. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you're gonna have that equipment over a longer period of time. So then your cash flow is up yes. at the end of that equipment's exactly. life. Exactly, yeah. yeah. As long as you pick one of those and you stick to it, yeah. as opposed to, you know, I'm gonna do this and this, and then it just gets confusing. That's the way I like to look yeah. at it. Yeah, and I even, if somebody is really like um, careful about their cash flow, I even am fine with saying, fine, put it in as a put it in as a cash flow, mm -hmm. uh, budget for it as cash flow, but then switch to uh, overhead recovery or just like over depreciation over the life of the machine, comprehensive, like you said. Yeah. Uh, once it's paid off, mm -hmm. so you so you're still you know recovering that. Absolutely. You know, so that makes a that's lot of often sense. it's like a hybrid, I guess, of yep. the two. Yeah. Yeah. We want to take a break from today's episode to thank our sponsor, Cycle CPA. Are you basing your business decisions solely on a gut feeling? If so, you may be leaving potential profits on the table. It's crucial to base these important decisions on your financials, whether you're planning to hire a new employee, add another crew, purchase equipment or vehicles, or take on more debt to support a new service line at Cycle CPA. They not only handle bookkeeping and taxes, but they also provide guidance in advisory services tailored to the landscape and hardscape industry. Their team of specialized accountants ensures that when it comes to making the next key decision in your company, you'll have a financial partner in your corner. So visit them at cyclecpa.com and for $200 off, mention the How to Hardscape podcast. Now back to our episode. And uh, I want to get into, I, I kind of do like a hybrid model in Moore's personally. Uh, now that I like kind of break it down, labor rate, uh, I recover my overhead through labor rate, but I still mark up my materials. So I don't want to make people think like you're just recovering your overhead through uh, your your uh, labor rate and then you're not marking up your materials at all. I still want to mark up my materials to be able to make sure, okay, uh, paver cracks, so we're going to go back and replace that. That's kind of like an unforeseen sort of circumstance. That that markup, do you treat, do you in your own mind, do you view that as overhead or profit? I view that as a kind of buffer. And I'm still kind of 
tweaking that in my own head as okay. to how much that, because right now that markup's not really based on much, right? It's just based on, okay, uh, one out of every 20 projects we end up having to go back to for like half a day to fix like a paver that cracked over the winter or maybe something sunk a little bit yeah. we need to go back yeah. because I don't, I don't actually have a warranty line item in my overhead at all. So I, I kind of do it through my materials because it's a more material tied thing. Huh. Those warranty callbacks. I'd love to know your opinion on that. And you're, I'm just kind of throwing this at yeah, you at the yeah, spur yeah. of the moment. So I would have probably, I would, my, my natural would have been, my natural method would have been to do what you just said, which is say, hey, on a, like we anticipate X amount of pro, uh, callbacks a year mm -hmm. and maybe on an average they're a half a day or yep. whatever. And so I would, to me, I would view that more as labor because that callback is much more expensive from a labor standpoint than a material standpoint, even yep. though material is what caused it per se yep. in this month. But it's not always what causes it, right? Yeah. Um, so to me, I would have put it more into the unbillable labor, like what I'm budgeting in unbillable labor. I can see that for sure. Yeah, yep. it, that's what I would put in because usually, not always, usually the material failure, like it's called a material material failure rate, yes. is is negligible. Like it's, or it's, it's unpredictable. It could, yep. most times it's zero maybe, but I guess it could be significant in a, mm. In a bad whatever. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, larger slabs have a larger surface area. Yep. So they're more prone to chip. Yep. Right? Chips are more prevalent around the edges because the edges are longer. Yeah. So you have a higher failure rate for slabs as opposed to smaller pavers. So you're thinking Same thing it. with ponds. Yeah. Uh, I, we talked about this just at Congress. Like yeah. my callback rate for ponds yeah. right now is not so good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's kind of something that I would mark up at a, a higher rate than, so that's why I kind of do it at the material level. But this is still something that I'm kind of working out in my head because I can see it being uh, unbillable labor for sure as well. So what if I, my, the way I'm interpreting what you're saying is it's like a material failure buffer, a yes. material failure rate, yep. or, you know, it's like a, it's like, you know, I pay for this if everything goes perfect, yep. but there's a, there's a certain failure rate or a, or a buffer that you're building in for failure yep. uh, or imperfections or whatever Correct. on the product. So it's, it's like, I guess if nothing happens, it goes into profit. Yep. But if something does happen, you were budgeting for it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense to me. Although I would still argue that the most significant cost in that real life scenario yep. is the unbillable labor. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. For um, sure. And and so what I'm more concerned about is is your unbillable labor budgeted in accurately or or realistically I should yep. say. Um, and if there was a if, if, the way I would think about it, not I would probably not anchor. Hmm, that's a good question. Like, I would probably not anchor my covering of material failure off of a percentage of the cost. Although I can see why it, I can see why you would do that. I'll, I'll walk you through my yeah. thought process yeah. a little bit more while yeah. you think about that. Like, for example, if I have a thousand square foot patio, a thousand square foot, the product is five dollars a square foot. Let's say that's five thousand dollars, and I add up a markup of ten percent. That's f like roughly five hundred. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to cover my labor if I'm going to have to go back there and fix. Uh, a certain percentage of those that might fail. So if my failure rate is, uh, I don't know, 10%, sure. we'll say, uh, that's 500, 500 bucks per. Yeah. That is 100 square feet that's gonna fail. It's not gonna be that high, obviously. Yeah. But that's that $500 is gonna cover me to have to replace that 100 square feet. Yeah. And it's going to cover my, my yeah. labor, right? I, I, I would still, I can, see, I can see the case for a material failure rate I would, I personally, I would probably split them apart. Like 
I would do I would allocate I would allocate unbillable labor mm-hmm. for the labor part of it. Okay. Because it depends what I'm installing too. That it could like it could swing and it could be a 30 minute fix. Could be a two day fix. Yep. Right. So I would be I would. I would put the labor where the labor is and put the material where the material is. Okay. Now, obviously, me buying new material, if it's not covered by warranty or whatever, but I'm still going to, of good faith, cover it or not build a client for it, yep. you know, then that would be a material failure rate p- angle yep. or part of the budget. In my, in, that's how, just, not, just off the cuff here, that's yes. kind of how my, my brain would dissect that. So then getting into recovering your overhead through labor rate, do you tell people to mark up the materials at all? Yes, and but... And if so, why? Yes, yeah, so the way, the way we think about it is like, okay, Cost is what you pay mm-hmm. for the product. You know, if you pay ten bucks a square foot, you know that's your cost. Yep. Overhead recovery is the is a second component. Okay. Then net profit is the third component. Yep. So estimating is cost plus overhead recovery plus net profit. Yep. And so in materials, if you're not recovering any overhead on materials, all you have left is the cost plus net profit. Yes. So if you have a 10, 20, whatever percent net profit markup, it's mm-hmm. like if I pay ten bucks for the the cost of the material, I still add 10, 20 percent on top of that for my profit. So everything, I don't care what I sell, everything gets a net profit markup. It's the, really the only variable is, is what gets an overhead marked up, markup put in between mm-hmm. the cost and, and profit. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, you did mention earlier abusing different systems. Uh, multiple overhead recovery system. How, what, what's like an example that comes to mind that somebody could abuse it? Uh, what does that look like in like the real world? Um, is that just kind of yes. getting carried away with your numbers and different markups that you're adding together? Well, I'm, I'm trying to think if I have a, if I can think of a way to abuse multiple overhead recovery specifically as okay. opposed to any well, budget. Well, any any e- kind e- of e- uh, e- recovery system. E- I guess. Okay, so any so the biggest way I see it being a, I'll, I'll just rattle off a, a couple. Yep. One is if your overhead recovery is tied to labor, which 95% of the time it is, mm-hmm. right? Um, I sometimes say like, you know, budget for worst case scenario, budget for worst case scenario. If you think you want to buy that equipment or if you think that truck's going to break down, you're going to need to replace it this year, put it in, put it in, put it right. in, right? If you think, if you wish you could hire an office admin, but you don't think you can afford it yet, put it in. Like, like budget for worst case scenario. And sometimes people, I've, I've seen this happen where people are like, okay, you know, I got it, I got it, worst case scenario, whatever I think might happen, that's what I'm going to put in my budget. Mm-hmm. Well, then they'll go in and put field labor employees that they think they might hire next year. And what happens is, is when you add an employee that you don't yet have into your budget, it now throws man hours into your budget that don't yet exist, meaning nobody's actually producing those billable man hours. So for instance, a practical example, I'm a four man company, but I'm thinking next summer or this summer, I'm gonna gonna add two more people. So I throw them in right now. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what that does? It throws, let's just say they're 2000 hours a year, full-time employees. So that throws an additional 4,000 man hours into my budget, now my overhead, say I have a $200,000 worth of overhead expenses, now it's being divided by 4,000 additional man hours that yes. nobody owns yet. Yep. So it's lowering my overhead recovery per man hour, mm-hmm. but I'm sending bids out today. Right. And so for that example, what I recommend to fix that is like, don't add field labor employees until you cut their first, first payroll check. Got it. That's when you add field, field labor employees. That makes sense. Everything else, you add worst case in advance, project, you know, if I think I might, that, you know, that overhead expenses especially, that, then you put that in. So just what you said there, and we're, uh, we're probably running short on time, uh, and I've got so many more I'm questions good. that are Let's coming to your head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, now that you bring that up, uh, what do you think about recovering overhead by crew versus employees? Well, that's fine, as long as you have the same crew every time, all the time, no exceptions. Yes. If you ever, like I like it by man hour, 
but then my okay so then my my antidote to the pitfall of doing it by man hour is always bid in full days mm -hmm. so if i bid if i work an average of 10 hour work days yes and i have an average of three men on a crew mm -hmm. so that means my full days are increments of 30 man hours so i'll always bid in 30 man hour increments if my bid comes in at 45 round up to 60 no exceptions there is no such thing as half day billing in the, in the because otherwise I get back to the shop at noon. What am I going to do? Start you know, start the next job? One, you know, no. I mean, I guess you can depending on what type of service you provide. Yeah. But rare, it's always been in full days. For sure. Which to me, kind of then, if I if I'm anticipating, I think what you're thinking about bidding in crew or budgeting in crews gives me the same benefit, mm -hmm. but then allows me to be flexible. So if I want to do a two-man crew on that job versus a five-man crew on that job or, mm. bid, or you know, bulk up a crew or like in, in some bigger companies, you have the luxury of having floaters. You have maybe yes. a, a foreman and a, and a right-hand man, and then you have floaters that they can go bounce around, yep. which man-hour billing and overhead recovery makes is more flexible, uh, makes more sense, it's more dynamic. Whereas with crew billing, unless you're really rigid, always do the same thing every time, which I mentioned you probably are yourself. Mm. Uh, there's ways to, there's ways to potentially break it. Uh, now to, to, to flip script here on the other side of the coin is the risk of doing it by the man hour is that you only worked 15 man hours that day and you should have worked 30. Mm. And so that means you only recovered half your overhead. Mm -hmm. And if you recover it by crude days, that almost never happens. Right. You it's know? more consistent, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you could have a three-person crew, one employee leaves, quits just out of the whim. Yeah. You still have one crew, yeah. even though it's just two people. Yeah. That's that's uh, that's probably like the biggest benefit I would see. Yeah. Recovering yeah. by the crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and it yeah it's just. It is kind of simpler in a way. It is for sure. Especially if you're just getting started with the idea of overhead recovery, you can just be like, well. Especially if you're an owner operator. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still don't, it's still not my preferred method, but I can see the case yeah. for it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when we, we kind of have the same mindset on budgeting for the future of your company. I like to say, uh, I like to budget for the company that I want to be tomorrow, not the company that I, I am today. I love that. That's my favorite part about budgeting. Yes. It's like your permission to dream. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, we're coming into a time where it might be a little bit more difficult for landscape companies. Sure. Uh, at what point do companies get carried away with that? Do you have a uh, something to stick to or something to help people like, you know what, as things kind of get difficult, make a list of things and prioritize them as to what you can cut. Because you're, you're, you're budgeting as to who you are tomorrow, but you're priced out of the market. Your, your closing rate is uh, going down. Maybe it's time to cut ABC to get to a market-based. I like, I like what you're saying about planning your potential cuts, if need be. Mm -hmm. That's really smart. Um, but yes, that's what I would do. I would build, I would build multiple budgets, like scenario A, B, C, you right. know? And the way I would still say it is continue budgeting for the business you want to be tomorrow, not okay. the business you were yesterday. Let the market tell you mm -hmm. that that doesn't work. Yeah. Meaning like I am consistently losing jobs that I would have fully expected to win. You, although I would kind of argue then it turns into a salesmanship game because rarely is price... I shouldn't say rarely. It can be. It depends what your persona, your core customer is, or your yeah. target customer is. But price is... Definitely not the biggest thing that makes you win or lose a job. 
But yes, it is a factor. So yes, we have to deal certain with certain demographics. Yeah, 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 or certain types of work, whatever yep. it is you're doing, right? So, um, so yes, price has a varying degree of weight, I guess, in closing the in closing a deal is what I'm trying to say. But what I would still say is still budget for the business you were tomorrow. Only begin to change that if you genuinely can't close work. Mm -hmm. And then I like the idea of what you just kind of said is like, well, copy the budget and do a scenario B and C of like, well, if I had to, you definitely can't just arbitrarily lower your prices. Right. You have to go back into your budget, manipulate the budget to produce a lower price. Yes. That's a temptation that people sometimes use like, ah, oh, whatever, I'll just knock 10 bucks an hour off. I can't do that. You have to go in and like be strategic about what you're cutting. Mm. But um, then if you do, go in there and like do a scenario B and C, I'm like, well, first I would cut this. First I would cut that. Maybe I could delay making that upgrade or that move for another year or two. Or, you know, start doing that. And then, then I, what I like about that is then you could be like, well, now I know that that would save me eight bucks an hour. That would save me $15 an hour in, in, my, in my labor rate or whatever. And um, now I know before I'm even out there, my bottom of bottom, scenario C, like the absolute cutting everything I can cut, I cannot go less than X dollars per hour. Right. So now I know, even though I'm charging my forward-looking budget mm -hmm. hourly rate, I know my bottom hourly right. rate that I cannot go below. Yep. So now when I'm out there in the market and, and I'm fighting the head trash, if I just got rejection, I just got a no on my third proposal in a row, what do I do? How do I respond? Now I kind of know already before before the temptation to react has even happened, mm -hmm. what my floor is. Yeah. And and that that can let you be a little more data driven as opposed to emotional reaction yes. to to needing to make a cut yep. to match the market what the market will bear because mm -hmm. the market ultimately is the answer it is what will answer that question. Right. So is that just a matter, like I like to tell people like, look at your sales process first, that might be your answer. Yes, totally, 100%, look at your sales yeah. process first. And then see what your closing rate is once you improve your sales process to the point you think you can. Yeah. And then is that the point where, okay, you've improved your sale process to the point that you think you can, you've maxed out that, that at the current time, your closing rate is still not uh, where you want it to be, so now you take a look yeah. at your budgets. Love that, yeah. like literally build a budget, then focus all of your energy on getting the leads that are that are the type of people that can buy the service that you sell priced at the price that you need to sell it at. Mm. So it's like, go to budget, okay, done with that. Now, all my energy and personal development and it goes into uh, the, my sales process and becoming an expert salesperson. Going back and, and tweaking the budget to lower my rates is last resort. It's the right. last thing I do because there's so much juice to squeeze out of growing yourself as a salesperson. Yes. So much juice. In fact, even in a down economy, even in the worst of economies, there are people out there that have money. Yeah. And it's like it's like comes down to building the trust and the rapport to be able to to you know work for them. Mm -hmm. And so it really becomes a marketing. Once you have your budget established, it becomes a marketing and and getting really super clear on who your target demographic is. That's that's the game from there on out. Okay. Two more questions. Yeah. First one, at what point do people make their budgets and continuously see, or estimate their projects and continuously see that, for example, the materials are 25% and it's consistent? At what point do they just say, you know what? Every project going forward, if it's this type of project, I'm just gonna measure out my materials and then multiply by four, and that's my estimate. I would, 
I mean, I would never do that personally. <laughs> I wouldn't either. Yeah. I just, that's what but I'm asking. The only way it would work is if you are so completely cookie cutter that you're like a factory. Right. You're manufacturing the exact same thing over and over and over and over. Yeah. So there's just so many variables. In this end, it's like design, access. Like you yes. just can't do that, yeah. you know? So to me, I would, I would say never. <laughs> um, it's like it, multiplying what, by square foot. Yeah, what I would use that for, what I would actually use that for is vetting, vetting conversation yes. with a client. Over the phone, yeah, you know, what you're describing here is a fifty to $70,000 project. That's what I would use it for. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, uh, yeah, you know, tons for, you know, whatever, uh, but never an actual quote. Mm -hmm. Just because of all the variables that go into it. Yeah, it also gives you nothing to measure against. Yeah, Job costs exactly. and, and everything like exactly. that. Exactly. Weston, where's Synced Up going? What's the future of Sync? What's the end goal of Synced Up? This is something that I'm personally curious about. Yeah. Well, um, when we started Synced Up, like back to that conversation with my dad on the back patio one evening after work, it was a cool idea. You know, it was like, oh, this would be awesome. You know, it was dreaming. Then uh, it didn't take very long to get like, this is this is problem is not unique to us. This is a business opportunity. Um, and then after that, it was more of um, as we dived, as I dived into the, you know, the, the business side of it, it was like, and I started seeing the need out there and the impact it was having on, on contractors. I started feeling more like, less like it was a business opportunity, more like it, it's a calling. Like it, it genuinely is so needed across so many hundreds of thousands, millions of businesses in North America, actually, that... I, my vision for Synced Up is, you know, you've heard all the social media hashtags I use, like thrive, not survive. But my vision for Synced Up is I see a world of hardworking, incredibly skilled craftsmen that are salt of the earth people, blue collar contractors. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, you know, just like hardworking people that work with their hands, that are extremely skilled at what they do. But by default, what tends to happen is they work 20 to 30 years of their life harder than any one of their neighbors around them and look up 50, 60, 70 years old and have very little to show for it. And I want to change that. I want to, I want to see Synced Up be the thing that changes the tide and the direction and the inertia of that trend or stereotype, whatever you want to call it, for the contractor industry. Um, I want it to be something that genuinely takes these hardworking people that produce an incredible product and service for, that produce tons of happy clients and make sure that that value they're bringing in the marketplace also makes them financially secure and successful. And I believe that when that can happen, not only are they as an individual better off mentally, spiritually, emotionally, everything, health-wise even, but their team is also is also better off. Like they're actually working for someone that isn't reacting to the dumpster fires, but is actually building a business strategically and proactively. But even bigger than that, kind of this is where it made it's more of a personal meaning thing, uh, is their families behind them. When dad comes home from work at 5 p.m. instead of 9 p.m and kids get to see their dads more. You know, kids get to actually have a positive experience of dad owns a business as opposed to a negative experience because dad's never at home. Um, that's, that's, I, I want to see, to see Synced Up 
be that that re the reason that that trend or kind of default path changes and make it make it make it accessible so there's so many times where maybe I'm a landscaper but I'm not really a business owner or I don't have the entrepreneurial mindset but I'm really good at landscaping I want to take that person and help them avoid all those common stumbling blocks and painful uh, mistakes that that person will make void of the business acumen. I want to make the business acumen so plug and play that it just make, takes the landscaper and makes it totally accessible to them to run a, a financially healthy, driven by data uh, business as opposed to a, well, I don't have any money, I worked hard all year, I don't know where the money all went, I guess I'll just work harder. I, I, I want to take I want to move the, I want to, I'll just work harder to, I'll just work smarter and I don't have to become a spreadsheet geek or an accountant to figure that out. It's just plug and play. That's, that's what I want. So what product or service comes next for Synced Up? <laughs> does Synced Up become an ecosystem or does Synced Up keep on improving on the product that well, is already established? It's, it's dangerous to try to do a startup within a startup. Yeah. You know, and, um, we're bootstrapped, you know, we're not funded. So that basically means that for us to invest in the next product, we have to be producing enough of revenue to fund doing that while still maintaining the, next, the one we have. So for the foreseeable future, it's good, definitely gonna be honing what we have. I don't believe in trying to be all things to all people. Cool. I, and, I, and I actually believe I've seen this as a trend in the software industry. Um, as well, which is where maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was much more of like, oh, we're the silver bullet, we do everything, all underneath one roof, to more of a, actually, we are really good at this one thing, mm -hmm. we're gonna be the best in the world at it, mm -hmm. and we just integrate with everything else. Right. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a happy medium to, to that, but I am weighted more to the, we're gonna be the best in the world at this one thing, and then integrate with everything else, because like, who are we to go try to reinvent QuickBooks? Why would we go out there and right. waste all that energy on, I mean, Intuit's a billion, multi-billion dollar company. Why right. would we try to compete with them at accounting, yeah. right? Do the, solve the problems that haven't been solved yet mm -hmm. at scale. Like don't try to, trying to, trying to be in, oh, we also do that to, product, to, to problems that have already been solved at scale is, takes a lot of money, yeah. you know? And so for now, it's literally take the, uh, be the business operating system for contractors which is both the know your numbers aspect, budgeting, estimating, job costing, plus the operations that we need to collect that actual data, scheduling, time tracking, proposals, invoicing, all that stuff, um, and refining what we have, make that super, again, be the best in the world at what we do. Yeah. Well, Weston, thanks so much. Could talk to you for hours, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just scratched the surface, I feel. Uh, where can our audience go find out more about you? Well, um, we also have a podcast called The Cost of Doing Business, and I interview mostly synced up users to kind of get into long form stories like, hey, tell me about your business, tell me about your story. Like, and, uh, you know, I also like to ask, like, what's been the most significant challenge you've overcome? Those kinds of things. Just try to get under the surface, get beyond the Instagram profile, yeah. you know, a little bit. And also to try to, like, what I see from going out there all over the country talking to all kinds of com companies is that this thing of like, well, everybody else has it all figured out. Instagram, you know, Instagram makes it look so awesome for everybody else. We're the only ones that have this, this challenge is unique to us, you know, and that's actually not true. And so one of my goals with the podcast is to 
make it relatable. Like, I mean, oh man, yeah, I'm not the only one, you know, and, and draw some comfort from, uh, like from, from the brotherhood, so to speak. So I, that's my goal with that. But you can find the cost of doing business podcasts anywhere podcasts are. And then I personally am most active on Instagram. You can find it at synced up S Y N K E D U P. And ultimately, uh, you can check out our website as well, SyncedUp.com. And that's where most of the information is uh, about what SyncedUp is, what it does, customer stories, all that stuff. Awesome. So, Weston, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> thanks for having me. This was an amazing conversation. Appreciate it. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. I want to say thank you to Weston uh, for making the time and being willing to have a, this conversation here with me. Weston reached out to me two or three years ago now, uh, just when they were kind of bringing Synced Up to the market. And I've always enjoyed our conversations together. And uh, it's always been a pleasure to get to speak with him with the time that we do have. So uh, I do want to say thank you to Weston and what what he's doing for the industry and every all the hard work that he's put in to this industry to just make it better. So I did want to add that here at the end as we come to a conclusion here. And if you're listening to this or listening to this podcast for the first time and you enjoyed it, a five-star rating really goes a long way for us here. That's Spotify, five-star rating, quick couple of clicks, Apple, a quick couple of clicks, plus a written review. That's amazing if you could do that as well. I would really, really appreciate that here. But I'd also love your feedback, suggestions, comments, guest suggestions. Shoot me a message at How to Hardscape on Instagram so that we can see where we want to continue to make this podcast better in this new year. I already have some ideas on some guests that I'm lining up just to take this podcast in a different direction to bring a lot more value than the already amazing guests that we've had on in the past, but kind of bringing this to the next sort of iteration of what the How to Hardscape podcast is, because there's already 250 episodes beyond us here that already have great guests and a lot of great advice, uh, but we want to kind of one-up ourselves this year. So any comments, suggestions, anything, uh, or even about this topic that me and Weston just talked about today at How to Hardscape on Instagram is the easiest way, or just contact at howtohardscape.com if you want to email. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Cycle CPA. If you're looking for bookkeeping, accounting, CFO services, reach out to Cycle CPA at cyclecpa.com. Or if you're on Instagram, cycle underscore CPA. Let them know how to hardscape set you for money off your services there. And we look forward to meeting with you next week on the How to Hardscape podcast.